the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeedy, and a pleasant good afternoon. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, lighting upon your lily pad or joining you for your commute home, whatever the case might be, each Monday through Friday at this time, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Today, we're going to talk about issues that impact your health. A look at healing from within with Dr. John Duong. Dr. Duong, welcome. Good to have you on the program. Thank you. Let's start first as sort of the groundwork for our conversation today and this series uh, to better allow listeners to get to know you and, most importantly, your philosophy when it comes to health care. Uh, yes. My philosophy is that, like, just imagine if you have a full cup of water, how can you get more water through this cup without spilling so I understand this philosophy when I was in, in my 20s. It's all about love. It's all about sharing. So what I do is that when my cup is full, what do I do? I share with other people. I empty my cup so my constant flow of water will go through my cups. That's how I gain knowledge is by sharing my knowledge to other people so I would make other people better with me. So I just love that philosophy, and I keep practicing that once I learned it. And for me, I learned about health. I see how powerful the healing from within is. So I would like to share this information, this share this knowledge that I gain to the audience that I will be contact with. One of my goals for this year is to go around churches and sharing how does the body heal from within? So one of the churches that I went uh, last month, which is October, is Wells Community Church. And I, I did have a great time sharing the information there. And I want to continue to share this to the world now. Healing from within. Where is the sources of healing? Is the creator. God gives us the permission to heal. The healing is inside us. We have to permit the body to heal from within. That, of course, leads us to today's topic, and that is the issue of chronic pain. And there are millions of Americans, yes. as you know, who suffer with chronic neck pain, chronic lower back pain. And I think a lot of people, particularly by the time they reach their mid-50s and 60s, sort of shrug it off. They accept it as a natural part of growing older. They accept prescription drugs in order to anesthetize or numb the pain, never thinking that there would ever be a possibility to be free from the pain in a natural approach. Talk to us about how is that whole idea of accepting pain is just a part of growing older wrong? That is not right because pain, we can fix it. I learned this from Old Nightingales. He said 95% of people will fail and only 5% succeed. What's the difference? Why is that numbers? He said that because people simply don't think, and they do not have a plan. They don't have a goal. So what do we have to do? For me, I'm just talking by myself. The first thing I pray is the wisdom. I need to pray 
for wisdom so I can determine what is right. So by asking questions. So if you have pain, in particular in the neck pain or back pain, the first question is that why do I have neck pain in that area? So for my patient, the first question I ask is that if you were to have a neck injury or back injury and you take an MRI or an X-ray, why is most of the injury? So that's why we think now. We have to think. We have to process. Why is the most injury is the C4, C5, which C stands for cervical. In the C4, C5, and C6, it has the most degenerative, most arthritis, most herniated disc at that level on the neck. How about if we, in the process of thinking, on the L lumbar, has the most injury is the L4, L5. L5, S1 has the most degenerative press on the nerve, so it, go, it travel down to the leg, the sciatic nerve. So why are those the most common area? So we need to ask questions, and then how can we fix it, and how can we prevent this from further damaging it? How can we prevent it from co- even coming back after we fix it? Now, the predominant approach by traditional medicine, of course, has been to provide drugs, that numb the pain, but never really address that underlying question as to what is causing this degenerative case in those areas that you mentioned specifically in the neck and lower back, and most importantly, to use the body's natural ability to heal from within to begin addressing that. So instead of relying on outside painkillers, we're instead harnessing the power of the body to heal from within. How do we go about doing that? The first thing is that we need to know why is that the most degenerative on that area, that C4, C5, C5, C6, L4, L5, L5, S1, is because us, like for example, when we sit, what do we do? We slouch. When we slouch, what does it do? It compresses the disc more. It put more pressure. As a result, the disc will degenerate faster. There's arthritis is building up. So the loading would be there. The hernia disc would press on the nerve. So what do we have to do is that we have to solve that problem by sitting here up correctly. So my mother said, sit up straight in your chair. That was actually good advice. That, definitely. But when we have the problem, like some people are experiencing like excruciating pain, that, like if they have a neck problem going down their arms, or if it's back pain going down their leg, excruciating pain, what do we have to do? We have to solve the problem. There's a, multiple causes for one discomfort, one pain that you have. So we have to solve Usually is the disc. We have to fix the disc. And there's technologies that's available, the latest technology, to help the body to fix the disc. So at the end of the day, then, a lot of these causes, as you're suggesting, with chronic neck and back pain, come from bad habits. Bad habits um, is accumulations. A lot of it is accumulation. We bend incorrectly, sitting incorrectly, or we have a trauma that we never take care of it. Oh, when you're young, you're invincible, right? So it just builds up. And then also there's like, or it can be a trauma. So the high school football injury 30 years ago now suddenly comes back to, uh, to haunt you. Exactly. So at the end of the day then, teaching people how to use the power of information to correct behaviors, harness some of the technology, and ultimately allow the body to do what it does best, and that is to regenerate itself. We know that our cells are changing over thousands of times every second and regenerating, but oftentimes we don't really know how to properly put that power to our good use. God had a bigger plan, and unfortunately, oftentimes, we ignore that plan, don't we? Yes, so we need to go back to natural. 
first, if you do have an issue, is that why does it cause and change the bad habits? And if it were pressing on the nerve, you have a herniated disc or stenosis that's causing it. We have technologies to fix the problem. Let me mention for listeners, if you'd like to get more information, there's going to be an ongoing series available at Dr. Duong's YouTube channel. That's simply Dr. Duong Live on YouTube, Dr. Duong Live at YouTube, also at his Facebook page. And over the coming months, you'll be able to continue to watch this series Allow your knowledge to grow, as Dr. Duong suggests, as he is pouring out his cup of knowledge and providing that information to us. He, in turn, will gain more information and pass that additional knowledge on to you. If you'd like to get more information, let me encourage you also to go to Dr. Duong's website. That's drduonglive.com, drduonglive.com. As we say, you can also follow him at YouTube and on Facebook. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired or maybe concerned that you've been taking all of these medications to kill the pain because, I don't know, you've got an aspirin deficiency, well, we know that isn't the case. We know that where the deficiency is is the lack of knowledge and understanding to both the underlying cause of the symptoms and then most importantly, a lack of knowledge when it comes to harnessing the body's own natural ability to heal itself from within. Want to learn more? DrDuongLive.com. That's DrDuongLive.com. Doctor, thanks so much for the time today, and we look forward to the next installment in this series. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the audience. And again, more details on the web, DrDuongLive.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. We're here at uh, 20 minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on the Wednesday edition. Well, we have been following the story since it made its way through the California state legislature to the governor's desk, now into the court system. This is, of course, California's controversial AB 1266. I guess the issue of gender identity confusion is one that certainly well predates that of Bruce Jenner slash Caitlyn Jenner and um, has its genesis in a lot of arenas. But I think the important thing is not necessarily how it came about, but where it's leading us. And in particular, in an effort to try and address the issue for a child that may have gender identity confusion, we're unfortunately confusing everybody. And in the process, stealing literally out from underneath children the reasonable expectation of privacy. Let's get a bit of an update on all this. We're joined by Brad Dacus, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, um, to bring us up to date here, AB 1266, as I mentioned, was signed into law by Governor Brown and has been stopped at least temporarily in the court system. Tell us exactly what this bill is supposed to do, where things stand now, and most importantly, where things stand in the court system and what parents need to be aware of. Yeah, and in fact, this is being challenged. Uh, we at Pacific Justice are challenging that um, attempt in court so we can get it on the ballot and have it repealed. Uh, but what's so horrific about this is uh, the, the fact that we're talking about um, boys, say a boy who's a 100% biological boy, uh, being able to, uh, to go to, uh, into a girl's locker room, uh, take off his clothes in front of a 13, 14-year-old girl, or him see, observe girls coming out of the shower. And there's absolutely no legal protection under this law for the privacy rights uh, of those 13, 14-year-old girls. 
this is a clear violation of privacy under federal law. Uh, we at Pacific Justice would be uh, are filing a separate case in, in federal law arguing this if we had just one uh, parent willing to step up to the plate for their child who is uh, who has, has been visually violated by this. Uh, but then separately, though, we are challenging it uh, to get it on the ballot so at least parents have a chance this election to have it repealed. It is a horrific uh, piece of legislation. And, of course, the irony here is that reasonable accommodations can be made for a child who is struggling for this issue, though I'm not exactly convinced that this ought to be an issue that uh, we're necessarily giving options open to for a child that's, say, of um, elementary or middle school Age. I mean, at that age, they're they're barely old enough to to understand the differences between boys and girls, let alone make a determination as to whether or not they identify with the opposite gender of their birth. Uh, so that that's one issue at play here. And and I would imagine that this law, if it was simply in an attempt to try and assist children that are struggling with this could have made a reasonable accommodation by saying, well, uh, like in many cases, you'll find a handicapped bathroom that is gender neutral and say, well, if need be, you may use this bathroom as an alternative and not create this entire other dynamic that puts other kids at risk. Right. It's, it's, it's one thing to accommodate. It's another thing to enunciate and to for the government to play that role. And that's really not the, the role of the government. Um, in fact, uh, you know, uh, one study showed more than 70% of elementary school kids who have gender identity dysphoria, it's a real mental condition, uh, that those, those kids will work through it by the time they, they finish adolescence, um, and most through, through, uh, through puberty. So uh, it's, it's so counterproductive uh, to have that child uh, affirmed into a, a dysphoria that can really be uh, dealt with. And, and the, the, the long-term ramifications of someone who, uh, who does go that route um, is, is very, very bleak. The average transgender individual in the United States will not live to see their 30th birthday because of suicide and depression. And that doesn't matter whether you're in a, a, very, uh, a community like San Francisco or a small town in Wisconsin. Um, it's the same rate. Uh, because of the the internal internal uh, mental and emotional issues involved, so the compassionate thing to do is to not to do anything to encourage a child down a path which, um, to no fault of their own, but down a path that could cause them a tremendous uh, pain and the pain of many people around them. And is not this, I'll call it a mandate, because that essentially is what it is, short of the court stepping in and saying, okay, we're going to review this. Is this mandate not one that's also problematic in the sense that it doesn't require that there necessarily be um, intervention or interaction by uh, child welfare or by psychological professionals that would make a determination before moving forward. So in other words, a child can essentially arbitrarily make this decision or proclamation one day, and it automatically obligates not only the school, but everyone around this child to kind of play along. Am I right? Oh, right. And in fact, there's no obligation of the school to even inform the parents that the child when they get to school, changes their clothes to look like the other gender and uses the other gender restroom or showers. Uh, and it, so you can have a, a child, a five-year-old in kindergarten, say, this is who I am, and the whole school must bow to that and not even let the parents necessarily even be aware of it. Uh, we, we see that happening. Uh, we dealt with something like that uh, in, up in Rockwall, uh, Cal, um, 
uh, Rockland, California, and um, it, it's it's very very concerning. Um, what what is to prevent a child uh, that's maybe well enough aware of this with a wink wink nod nod say ha ha I know how I'm going to get in and get a good spy in the girls' bathroom or in the girls' locker room? I'm just going to go in and tell my PE teacher that I'm really uh, you know struggling with my identity here and that I really think that uh, there was a mistake made here and uh, I identify more with uh, the girls and the boys and therefore I want to be reassigned to, say, the opposite uh, gym class? I mean, is that under the, the way this law is written, the potentiality? And if so, wow, what a powder keg that could open up. No, it, it's, that's exactly correct. Um, all the child has to do is, is uh, profess that they sincerely feel that that day or that moment that they feel like they're the opposite gender and then they're allowed to use the office in their locker rooms, restrooms, etc. Then, then let me ask you a question. In, in a day and an age when... The Me Too movement is raising so much awareness about so many of the abuses that's taking place in the arena of sexuality, and we know that much of this is being promoted as, quite frankly, part of an agenda that comes out through Hollywood and entertainment and Madison Avenue at every single level. And given all the layers of complexity here, wouldn't it be better if such issues of uh, gender identity or... um, uh, perhaps uh, um, uh, other issues related to that, including homosexuality and the whole nine yards, that these issues wouldn't be better left to be decided upon and educated upon within the family and within the church and the confines of those relationships as opposed to thrusting it into the middle of all of uh, the, the public educational arena here that is wrought with so many twists and turns and agendas that at the end of the day, all we're doing is increasing the level of risk here at so many levels. I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be accommodating or understanding um, at, at ways in which it takes into the best interest of whatever needs a child may have or challenges that he or she may be facing, but that in the process uh, we should do it in a respectful manner? Oh, absolutely. One problem we do have also in California is is another law that Jerry Brown signed uh, that uh, makes it illegal to provide these kids, say, in elementary school, uh, counseling when the child says, I'm a boy, I feel like I'm a girl, and I want you to help give me counseling so I don't feel like I'm a girl. That counseling is illegal. We want, we will, de- it is, you have to deprive a child of that counseling, even if they want that counseling under California law, which only complicates it even more uh, for these poor children in these, uh, in these situations. Cannot. And it, yeah, and counseling is not even uh, required prior to determination that they go into the girls' locker room either. So at the end of the day, I mean, obviously the, the issue of, of the status of AB. Uh, 1266 will be decided by the courts. But on the the broader agenda here of education, sex education, some of the agenda that's being promoted, do parents not have a right to opt their children out of this if what is being taught or promoted runs contrarian to what is being essentially taught inside of the home, inside the family? We at Pacific Justice Institute uh, say yes, and we will defend uh, the rights of any parent who wants to opt their children uh, out of uh, this kind of material. That said, the textbooks are all being redrafted, uh, history, sociology, all grade levels, uh, to put in uh, LGBTQ icons, role models, 
Um, it is so horrific that we actually have a, a, a thorough analysis of it on our website uh, that people can download for free, and people will be very stunned to learn what uh, this uh, material is and its impact. So parents, do you have a right to opt out if there's a, you know, two speakers coming in um, that are going to confuse first graders, second graders? We've done this before. We've defended parents' rights to opt out their kids, and that's, that's smart. But parents, you also need to be aware that the textbooks that their children are going to be used, they're going to be used by children on public schools, including charter schools throughout California, um, will have this material and these icons and role models, um, whether parents like it or not. See, that's that's a problem, because at the end of the day, the local district ought to be making these decisions. The parents ought to have input on all of this stuff. And again, we're, we're not suggesting that um, reasonable accommodations should not be made or that efforts towards things like, uh, you know, protection of individual rights and uh, creating a safe, non-discriminatory uh, atmosphere ought to be uh, job number one. Certainly, as we've seen the light shed on the whole Me Too movement, uh, we clearly need to think the way uh, the issue of sexuality is handled by our society in every sense of the term. And yet, at the same token, uh, if parents don't know, well, then you can't very well act, can you? Um, we appreciate Brad Dacus and the effort to keep us apprised of what's going on here. Information available on the web, pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And our thanks to Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, for that update. All right, here at 533, we're a bit late. Let's get caught up traffic-wise. Michael Bennett's got the latest. Michael, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We have heard comments made by the administration in recent weeks that essentially the impact of ISIS has been nullified around the planet. And yet you have to wonder just entirely how true that is insofar as the ability, our ability to measure the influence of organizations like ISIS and fundamentalist Islam across the planet are very, very difficult. Not only is it a problem at a political level and institutional level in many parts of Europe and certainly throughout the Middle East, but even here at home in the United States, the layers in which it can have an influence in everything from our laws to education, the media and the like, is so widespread that it's almost impossible to ascertain just how much influence Islam has. And yet, at the end of the day, we know that some of the agendas within fundamentalist or um, more radicalized portions of Islam uh, are dangerous ones, and ones that run very much contrarian to the Western way of thinking and the Western way of life. So what of this influence, how widespread it is, is it, and most importantly, what can we do to counteract it? Not in a discriminatory fashion, certainly as a pluralistic society, we want to leave room for people of every faith, and yet, how do we do that in a fashion that doesn't mean that some of the radical aspects of fundamentalist Islam don't end up encroaching upon the rest of us? We're now joined by... Rahil Raza. Rahil is an advisory board member with the Clarion Project. Um, it's an organization that seeks to not only answer this question, but also to help all of us understand the potential impact and influence of Islam in modern Western society. And Rahil, thank you so much for being with us today. What of this question? When Donald Trump gets up and says, we've essentially neutralized the impact and influence of ISIS, just how accurate is that? 
Well, it's very hard to say, but we know that when we are talking about ISIS and the extremists, we are looking at two aspects. One is the physical position. So one, uh, you know, may have condensed the physical portion of where ISIS operates from. But the ideology is ongoing. And the important thing to understand for people in leadership, for law enforcement, for security, is that this is essentially a war of ideas. Uh, it is an ideological war that was launched 40 years ago, and uh, ISIS, Boko Haram, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, they're just various prongs of the same uh, monster, so to speak. And this is a war against the West. It's a war against the values of the West. And they have said, don't take my word for it, that they will uh, destroy the West from inside in any way they can. So in, in order to understand this complex issue, uh, it's important to differentiate between Islam as a spiritual message and Islamism, which is a political ideology. And that's what we're talking about here, Islamism, political Islam, which is uh, leading to radicalization, to terror. And now, uh, very frighteningly, uh, not now, this has been going on for a while, but you know, the West has just become cognizant of the fact that young people are being recruited uh, into this battle against the West, and, and they are young Western people. So the extremists like the Taliban have always used children because it's easy to manipulate them, to brainwash them. In fact, they grow up to, to be the terrorists, and so in that part of the world it's common. But they also recruit Western youth. And if you look at some of the statistics, uh, uh, according to the George Washington Program on Extremism, 153 individuals were charged in the U.S. with offenses related to the Islamist state, and 22% were 20 or younger. What, what has changed here? And you make the distinction, and I think it's an accurate one, Raheel, between Islam as an a, a theology and Islam as an ideology. Certainly, Islam as a theology has been around since the 8th century, but the ideology part, the political aspect of it all, seems in terms of the conflict with the West only really arisen in the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Um, some of this, I suppose, some might argue, is uh, post-World War II with the foundation of uh, uh, the state of Israel. Some people see that as sort of the, the, um, the, the line of demarcation with this. What, what in your opinion, well, has given rise fall, to this? Yeah, well, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the inability of the Arab world to come to grips with the fact that they were slowly diminishing, their, their uh, strength was diminishing, and that was the last caliphate. So they decided this this is an ideology called salafism or wahhabism which has been promoted for the last 45 years or so on the backs of billions of petrodollars from the oil rich kingdoms of saudi arabia and now qatar and from iran we have the khomeiniism which is essentially the same kind of a, a uh, violent ideology to be supreme so the the what is really happening in parts of the Muslim world is a struggle between the Shias of Iran and the Sunnis of Saudi Arabia. And of course, this is for supremacy and for control and hegemony over not just Muslims, but the rest of the world. This is why they keep talking about the caliphate, which is really a 7th century concept. And this is why ISIS wants to establish a caliphate. 
So what happened was that they were promoting, channeling this uh, ideology into the Muslim world, but then into the West as well. And, uh, you know, 9-11 was just one uh, example of how they wanted to destroy um, parts of the West, which are they know are important to the people. But it's, um, it's taken us a while to understand that while we need to counter violent extremism, which is the terrorists and the bomb attacks and all of that, we also need to equally counter nonviolent extremism, the ideology, the brainwashing of the next generations of, uh, of the youth. And this is why the Clarion Project has a, a uh, program now, uh, and they're producing a documentary called Jihad Generation, which will be out in the fall. And they are uh, organ- <coughs> excuse me, putting together programs for educators, for parents, so that they can see the signs of radicalization. Uh, you know, I often give the example of when a child is born, the child is inoculated against whatever virus may be uh, you know, prevalent at that time. It used to be smallpox and polio until they were eradicated. But we don't um, inoculate them against the virus of radicalization. And this is, as I said, about ideas. It's about an ideology, and it's hard to pinpoint because it's fluid. It can be done through the Internet. It's done through uh, through lectures, through person-to-person contact. And it's taken a while for our uh, agencies to actually recognize that, that this is a huge problem because uh, there isn't a national countering violent extremism program in the United States. Although we know that the FBI is investigating Islamist terror plots in all 50 states. And they have said that almost 100 youth from across the United States have been enlisted to fight with the extremists. And I have spoken personally to the Somali community community in Minneapolis. I was there a month ago. And their children, their boys, are being sucked in to go fight with Al-Shabaab, which is a Somali terrorist organization. And the mothers are are just, uh, um, you know, absolutely torn apart because they say, we know they're being radicalized, but we don't know how and where this is coming from. And that's what they want to find out. That's what we want to do. And, of course, the irony here is that uh, this religion with roots going back into the 8th century is using very modern technology to help spread a lot of the ideological standpoint of this. And largely, this has happened underneath the nose of the West. And I want to talk about some of those factors as to why when we come back after a timeout. Rahil Raza with us today, advisory board member with the Clarion Project. Um, Rahil, by the way, is a Pakistani-Canadian journalist, author, public speaker, and uh, anti-racism activist and uh, has been involved in this process of helping educate the West as to the signs that we need to be aware of and most importantly why it is that so many young people now on increasing numbers from the West get pulled into this vortex of radical or fundamental Islam. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Michael Bennett's got the latest. Michael, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation with Rahil Raza, advisory board member with the Clarion Project. You know, Rahil, it it dawns on me that the United States in specific, the West in general, engaged in a Cold War with communism for what, 46, 47 years until certainly the collapse of the Iron Curtain in parts of Eastern Europe in the late 80s and then, of course, by the early 90s in the Soviet Union itself. And for all the years that we were so 
fearful of the potential impact of communism and what that would mean, what that would do to liberty and freedom in the West, um, all along the, the insidious march of Islam was the real threat, and yet all of this has taken place, and it's happened right underneath our nose. I um, heard recently one of your colleagues uh, Ryan Morrow had been on Fox News and reported that some 300 Americans, Americans, have tried to join ISIS, and the number of Westerners is more than 2,000. So people of our own society, our own way of thinking, somehow feel as if they need to engage in the ideological battle to bring about the downfall of the very culture, nation, society in which they were raised and gave them life. And I think it points to the idea that that somehow of the real danger and threat here, we have all along been asleep at the switch. Well, it's ironical that when, as you mentioned, when there was communism, fascism, Marxism, the world came together globally to fight this this as an evil. Even today, when we look at white supremacy, the Ku Klux Klan, People condemn it openly, but when it comes to Islamism, and it's important to use that term, Islamism, this is not the march of Islam, this is the march of a radical ideology that we call Islamism, but when we, this is on the march, and when we expose this, people are reluctant to speak out, and this, of course, is thanks to political correctness, uh, the um, workings of the regressive left, and, you know, the the interpolitical struggles that go on. And I often remind people that the issue of radicalization is a nonpartisan issue, because if a bomb goes off in the middle of the town square, it doesn't look to see how you vote or the color of your skin or your nationality or your faith. It impacts all of us. And it is the future of our next generation uh, that is at stake here. So we have to speak out. And Muslims, like myself, uh, should be the first ones to speak out, because this is a virus within our faith. And any doctor will tell you that if there is a virus, it needs to be acknowledged, identified, isolated, and then cured. But we haven't even been able to get over that first lump, the the acknowledging and the identifying, thanks to the ideas of the Obama administration, when he could not even articulate the word radical Islamic. Well, and you know, and there's some irony to that, too, because to the broader sense, I, I've always find it disingenuous how that the the left has so struggled in the issue of speaking out against fundamentalist Islam. Now, they have no problem speaking out against fundamentalist Christianity, but fundamentalist Islam, they that, that kind of sticks in their throat. And yet, the, here's the irony, that Islam historically, ideologically, has been discriminatory towards others. Certainly, people of the Jewish faith will tell you that. They've been suppressors of women's rights at all levels. Uh, we've seen Islam engage in honor killings and execution uh, of petty thieves. I mean, on and on the list goes. And yet, in spite of all of that, um, the left seems to be very hard-pressed to criticize Islam. Certainly, it doesn't, it's never done it in the fashion in which it's done it against fundamentalist Christianity. Well, fundamentalism definitely needs to be uh, criticized, radicalization. I would not generalize that Islam has been unfair to minorities because it does have a historical record of having been tolerant and fair to minorities as well. So we don't want to paintbrush all of Islam. However, there is a problem and we need to articulate it. What we are seeing is a lack of conversation. What we are seeing is a lack of engagement on the issues that matter. So what happens is that the regressive left then deflects from the 
the real issue. And then they talk about racism and bigotry and Islamophobia, and you can't have the real conversations, which is, as I said, about the safety and security of our land, the safety and security of our youth. And uh, the, the lifestyles, the way they are today, create a vacuum for many youth. You know, young people are full of anger and testosterone, and they want to vent their, their anger. And many of them are isolated. They don't have family support. And these are the people that the extremists choose. So we want to warn parents and teachers and educators about the signs of radicalization so they can then uh, hopefully intervene before it's too late. You know, the, the issue, of course, here is that we've seen, for example, some of the spate of these uh, horrific school shootings. And, and afterwards, it's not unusual to hear the parents come back and say, I had no idea my son was plotting yeah. this. I had no idea my mm-hmm. child was involved in such matters. And, and yeah. yet, as you're suggesting, Islam seems to be now focusing on targeting troubled youth and recruiting them, and and they're using very modern uh, technology. They're they're engaged and they're harnessing the power of social media and the internet, in in ways that, quite frankly, it seems like a lot of in the West don't understand. Well, that's true because they don't understand. Uh, the difference between uh, a faith and an ideology. And they also live in this la-la land of thinking that this cannot happen to us. But if we, we look at some of the statistics and if you look at some of the work that is being done by the Clarion Project and watch some of their documentaries, especially a short one that's called By the Numbers, in which the uh, percentages are given of the mindset and the ideology. So what we have to remember is that no one is born a terrorist no one is born a radical no one is born a killer they are made into this and we need to go to the root cause of where the messaging is come from you know incitement hate uh, that is what is used by many extremists obviously to brainwash young people into be harming the other because when you hate someone then you can harm them so if they were teaching peace and tolerance and respect for each other, which is what we do, then they wouldn't harm them. And so we have to go to the root cause. We have to find where the messaging is coming from, and we have to stop that flow of messaging and have an alternate narrative uh, for our youth, both Muslim and non-Muslim, who are struggling with many of the uh, uh, political and geographical situations of what is happening in the Muslim world. And they have a right to ask questions, and we should be able to have a dialogue. It seems to me, too, that the issue here is not just of educating parents and young people of what is behind the ideological agenda of radical Islam, but then, too, it would seem, at least in terms of the West, I I mean, I think of the 300 Americans that tried to join ISIS, and that says to me, boy, not only are they ignorant and disenfranchised, but they're ignorant over their own constitution, the history of their own republic, and they may look as if they are somehow joining a noble fight for uh, freedom and liberty, but if anything, they're actually joining a fight on the wrong side. Well, absolutely, and this is why lessons like loyalty to the land in which we live, and which, by the way, I should mention, is a very Islamic concept. We are told as Muslims that we must follow the law of the land in which we live unless we are forced to go against the faith, which we are not. We have religious freedom. But uh, the conversation around the dining room table, you know, I have two boys that grew up here in the West, 
and we teach them loyalty to the land in which they live, respect and tolerance. It's these conversations that are extremely important, and they need to start at a very young age. As you say, uh, kids need to be taught about the Constitution, about the history of the country, what the forefathers did, so that they could have the freedoms that they have today. But here's the irony. The extremists within us who live and prosper in the West, they prefer to live in the West because they use our very freedoms against us. Uh, so many of them in their messaging stay just under the the line, the fine line of the law, so that they are not arrested. They don't go out and tell young people to go and kill their neighbors. But they use um, sublime terminology. Uh, they use messaging of us and them that, you know, their values are not the same as your values. And this is not how we want to bring up our children. We need to teach them that there is so much that we have to share and that, you know, I came to, as an immigrant to the West to embrace the values of a liberal small L democracy, of gender equality, of tolerance towards others, respect for those who believe and those who don't believe. Now, this is not being taught in school, and it's really important that children learn this at a very young age. And clearly the parents need to get better educated on such matters, too, because it's just too easy to be dismissive of all of this in the attitude of, well, never my child, not my child. And yet, sadly, as I mentioned, even as we saw the walkout in the classrooms all across America today, children protesting the violence that occurred down in Florida just a scant month ago today, it is a stark reality reminder of the kind of risk that we see potentially inherent here. And if we bury our head in the sands with the attitude of, well, not my child, that could just be the, the scenario in which that can allow this to, to not only foster but to flourish as well. Rahil Raza, advisory board member with the Clarion Project. Information available on the web at clarionproject.org. That's clarionproject.org. Rahil, we appreciate the time and the insights. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's get you updated on traffic right quick here, just ahead of some headline news and the latest at the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Michael. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.